Not too long ago, Gene and I celebrated our 25th, and uh, we did something I've never done before. I, I'd never been to Europe, never been across the Atlantic, and so we went to Italy and Greece and had a really, really good time. And uh, our first stop was in Rome, and it's the most romantic city in the world. I've not been to every city in the world, but I'm pretty sure it's the most romantic city in the world. It was fantastic, and but I digress. Anyways, we were there our second day, and Gene and I went on this Segway tour, you know, where you're riding the little scooters, stand-up scooters around. It was fantastic, and we had a great guide. His name was Alessandro, and uh, he was a very tan, very dark-skinned Italian with a great smile. Uh, we, we both loved him. One of us loved him more than the other. Uh, but when our, when our trip was over, we immediately got on a cab and went to another location to, uh, to see uh, another museum. When we got out of the cab, we realized that uh, Gina had left one of her bags in the cab as it was driving away. That wasn't the worst of it. The worst of it was this bag had both of our passports in it. That's not good. If you're in Italy and you don't really speak Italian and there are 40,000 cabs in the city with multiple cab companies, that can be a real problem. So we got on a another cab immediately and went back to where we were thinking maybe this cab is just doing some circles or something like this and that wasn't the case and Gina made her way back over to the Segway company and Alessandro and asked him for help and he helped us in fact he located our two passports he did for us what we could not have done he found the cab out of 40,000 cabs in the city found the right company located the passports, and the passports were returned to us within about five hours, which was fantastic. So Gene and I went on this anniversary trip to Rome, and while we're in Rome on our anniversary trip, guess who Gina falls in love with? Alessandro. Uh, but that was okay, because I was okay with that, because Alessandro was my hero, too. Uh, and, and so if this sounds like the premise to a Hallmark movie, it kind of is. Couple goes to Rome on anniversary trip. Wife falls for Italian hero. Husband's still okay with that because the other man saves the trip and the marriage. And the point of the whole story is this. Guys, don't make fun of women for liking the Hallmark Channel because those movies are real. Okay. Uh, there's, there's another reason I'm telling you the story, and that is... It's fun to be rescued. I mean, Gene and I both, we needed someone to come through for us because we could not do that for ourselves. It's also fun to rescue someone else. Alessandro enjoyed saving me, and he really enjoyed saving Gina, and so there's something to just rescuing the day for someone else. But not only do we get a kick out of doing that, God gets a kick out of doing that too. In fact, nothing makes God happier than to see his people coming through for other people and saving the day. Now, around here, we've recognized as a church, and I know this because I've been here for nearly a dozen years, and I get to talk to people, and I kind of know what people are thinking in the congregation. But more recently, I had a strategic planning meeting with our church leadership council and church staff, and several people who had been going to a Wednesday night training that I had been doing, and we started looking at our identity as a family of 
believers, a family of priests revealing Christ, and we started thinking about what's most aligned with that, what's not so aligned with that, maybe where do we need to adjust, and we wound up setting a couple of goals because we agree that there are two groups of people in particular that just seem to be the most obvious in need. And when I say this, I don't mean that this, these are the only two groups of people that have need, and I certainly don't mean to be condescending toward anybody because everybody has needs. Gene and I are great people, but we were in need. You have needs, I have needs. You're going to need another breath in just a second. A little bit later, you're going to need another drink. You're going to need another bite to eat. We all need human contact. We are all very needy people. That's what it is to be a person. you you got needs. We don't always acknowledge that we have the needs because most of the time they're being met. But when your needs aren't met, then you know, boy, do I have needs. And, and we've kind of had a heart in this church for some time for two groups of people, actually. One group would be those who really do not have a relationship with God. And that does break our hearts because we were made by God and for God and we've been made in His image. And if you don't have a relationship with your Creator, in all seriousness, you're operating on a deficit because you were made for Him. And so we have a heart to connect people to God through Jesus Christ. But there's a second group of people that I think our church has always had a heart for, and that's for kids. But in particular, as we were thinking through things, we thought about the kids who are at risk. And so we came across a couple of goals in particular. One was to create six hospitality outposts, if you will, whereby we can introduce people to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, largely through being good neighbors to people. And the second goal was we want, over the course of the next year, to involve personally at least 100 people. I know this sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. At least 100 people in ministry to support of at-risk kids and their families. So those are really some very big goals, but I know that they're appropriate goals because God gets excited when His people come through and save the day for other people. And it's not just how I feel. I mean, God makes this really plain in the Bible. Jesus makes this really plain in one of the more famous stories He's ever told Let's get into the story like this. Now, we're not going to be standing together because I'm just going to work through the passage verse by verse. But here's how the story starts. This is recorded over in Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law, and that's just fancy talk for a lawyer. On one occasion, this expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So he's going to ask Jesus a question, and the question is, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus, being Jesus, knew that there was a question beneath the question, and Jesus, in typical fashion, answers the question with another question, and the question is, what's written in the law? In other words, you're the expert in the law. You tell me what's written in the law. How do you read it? And the expert in the law gives the answer that even a non-expert could give, because back in Jesus' day, the answer to this question, what does God into what's the great command what makes god happiest everybody knew the answer and it was recorded over in the old testament and so jesus memorized the answer when he was a boy this expert in the law memorized the answer when he was a boy everybody in the crowd who's watching this exchange they had learned this as little boys and little girls and here's the response of the expert in the law he says love the lord your god with all your heart and everybody in the crowd is going uh-huh 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 love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind now 
Let's just pause here at this moment so I can give you a little bit of context for what's happening here. I believe that what's recorded here in Luke chapter 10 comes a little bit later than what's recorded in Mark chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 22. It's always a little bit hard figuring these things out because when the writers of the Gospels wrote their Gospels, they weren't necessarily thinking in terms of chronological order. That was not a primary concern for them. It's not saying that these events didn't happen, but they're thinking about communicating theological truths, not necessarily chronological time frames. I really believe that Matthew chapter 22 and Matthew or, and Mark chapter 12 come before this because on another occasion, some experts in the law come to Jesus and they ask him a similar question. And the question they ask him is, what is the greatest commandment in the law? It's the same sort of question. And Jesus there answers the question in the standard way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. That's the standard answer. But then on that occasion, as these experts in the law are testing Jesus, he adds something that typically was not added to the answer. In fact, he adds something never before added, which you don't normally want to do, especially in a Jewish or conservation culture, because if you're messing with tradition, you're... You're messing with people, and they don't necessarily like this, but Jesus adds a second thing. He says, love the Lord your God, and he says, love your neighbor. What's the rest of it? Love your neighbor as, okay, see, you know this. Jesus gives them this answer, and when he does add this second part to the standard answer, he is taking things horizontally. That is to say... Yes, we do love God vertically, but it's not a private affair. You're not actually going to be loving God the way you need to be loving God if you don't actually, in a practical way, love the people who are around you. Now, when Jesus adds this part to the answer, he's not going against tradition. He's just going behind a rather new tradition. And what I mean is oftentimes people get into this mindset of here's the traditional answer, and, and it's actually kind of a new tradition. Jesus always presses further back and he presses further in into the heart of the law and he also presses back a little bit further than people typically will go. So when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and, and love your neighbor as yourself, he's actually going to the Decalogue, to the Ten Commandments because you might remember in the Ten Commandments the first four are sort of vertical and then the next six are horizontal and so Jesus' answer is actually better because it goes back further and gets actually into the heart of the law. Because we'd much rather just say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, because then there's no test. I can just say, well, this is how I'm feeling and everything's good and I'm doing these spiritual disciplines. But there's no real test for how my love is going. And when Jesus gives us this horizontal plane, well, actually there is a test, and that is how are you actually practically loving other people around you? And when Jesus presses back the way that he does, he also quotes from a verse that's in the Old Testament. He's not making something up when he says, love your neighbor as, as yourself. What he's doing is he's reminding us of what's recorded in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which is in the Old Testament. It's in the Hebrew Scriptures. And here's what that verse says. This is actually very helpful to understand. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, I hope you caught that, that first part here. Don't seek revenge oh, and don't bear a grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. Your people. You know who your people is? You know that you've got your people and you've got people who are not your people. And anytime you're talking about who your people are, 
you're also talking about, well, I have some people that aren't my people. Because these are my people and these are not my people. If you ever talk like that, it's a very Old Testament thing. If you're, if you're a UT fan, Longhorns, those are my people. But Sooners, those are not my people. And it's all there in the chant. We all know who are not their people, right? So the question is, well, who, who are your people? Well, your people are your neighbor and your neighbor happens to be your people. Those two things are used interchangeably in this particular passage. What I'm saying is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 could have just as well said, do not seek revenge or hold a grudge against anyone among your people, but love anyone among your people. Or don't hold a grudge against or seek revenge against your neighbor, but love your neighbor as yourself. Both of those things, your people and your neighbor, are used interchangeably. Your neighbor happens to be your people. Your people happens to be your neighbor. And so the question that you could ask a Jew would be, okay, who are your people? And the Jews would obviously answer, well, my people are other Jews. The Jews are my people. It's us and them. It's the Jews and not the Jews. I know who my people are. And when you define your people or your neighbor in this more narrow sense, loving your neighbor as yourself really isn't all that hard. Let me explain what I mean by this. When you're on the same team, you show love to someone else on the team, you're kind of showing love to yourself. In basketball, you pass to someone, they score the point. Do you get jealous because they scored but you didn't? Well, you shouldn't be because there's something called an assist, and an assist is really important because they couldn't have scored if you hadn't passed it to them. If they score, you score, you all score. If somebody else blocks the shot, well, your team blocked the shot. I mean, you get team statistics. When you're playing on a team, that's what you really care about. And so if you show love to someone else by passing them the ball, you've shown love to yourself because you're on the same team. And so when we watch professional sports and we see these athletes kind of going at each other and kind of bearing grudges and undermining each other on Twitter and all the rest, you kind of go, ugh, gross, I don't care about that team. I don't, I don't like that team because they're not even acting like a team. And I don't understand that. And we start getting a little condescending toward that because we think loving your teammates should be really, really easy because you're on the same team. This is why school spirit's really important for recruiting. You go to a college campus and they're not sporting the colors or people aren't showing up to the games and you go, I don't want to be a part of that neighborhood because it seems like they're not really neighbors. But you go to the school where the stadium's packed and where everybody's sporting the colors you say, you know, I want to go to that campus. Why? Because that's the kind of neighborhood I want to be a part of because if you're a neighbor, you ought to love your neighbors. And so for the Jews, they say, well, who, who's my neighbor? I know who my neighbor is. That My neighbor happens to be those who are my people, and my people are the Jews. And so I've got a limited, def- well-defined idea of who my neighbor is. It's, it's my people, and it's, uh, it's other Jews. So back to Jesus. Here's this guy, this lawyer, who comes to Jesus... And he already knows the answer that Jesus has given because he was either in that crowd the first time or he knows somebody was in that crowd the first time. And so he's setting Jesus up because he's wanting to take Jesus down. He's wanting to trick Jesus or trip him up. And so he says, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, how do you, how do you read the law? You know, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And at that point, this lawyer who's heard Jesus answer before grins with a grin that maybe we like to grin when we think that we are one step ahead of the other person. And he gives Jesus, Jesus' his answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So the question the man asks, it's a good question, and the answer he gives is a great answer. 
But just because it's a good question and a good answer doesn't mean it's an honest question and an honest answer. And that, by the way, is the difference between a dialogue with somebody and a debate. In a dialogue or a discussion, you're both trying to get to the truth. This guy's not interested in getting to the truth. This guy's just interested in winning. And how sick is that, really? I mean, hold on, this is for free. How sick is it to use the Bible that points to Jesus, who gives us grace, and we want to use the Bible to beat up on somebody else so we can prove that we're better than them, which is entirely opposite of grace, and actually denies our brotherhood and sisterhood with one another? That's kind of sick. If you're right, but your heart is wrong, that's even... You're like the lawyer here. That's what I'm saying. That was free. Okay. So the guy says, what do you think? Jesus says, what do you think? How do you read it? And the the guy gives Jesus the correct answer. And Jesus, probably still smiling, even though he knows what's in this guy's heart, because nobody ever answers Jesus correctly, but this guy does. And so Jesus says, you've answered correctly. You gave me the full answer. You didn't give me just the little traditional part. You went horizontal. Good for you. Fantastic. And he says, go and, uh, you know, do this and live. And, and then maybe Jesus is going to go on to somebody else and have another conversation. But, but the guy stops him because here's what the text says. The text says, but he, that is the lawyer, wanted to justify himself. Hey, I'm not done, Jesus. I got more. I had a question beneath the question. I know you didn't really know I had a question beneath the question. But here's, here's the real question. Because I really want to trap you and I want to justify myself at the same time. And so the guy asked Jesus the real question, which is, and who is my neighbor? Now, the reason the guy is asking this question so as to trap Jesus is pretty, pretty simple, I think. He's probably seen how Jesus is inclusive of the women. Jews in Jesus' day, they didn't do that kind of thing. And he's probably heard about not just women, but he's, Jesus actually ministered to this Samaritan woman at the well and and then there was this really public thing with the centurion, the Roman soldier, and, the, and it's like, man, this guy seems to be out of bounds on this neighbor thing. And so part of it is he's wanting to trap Jesus and expose Jesus. And part of it is he just wants Jesus to give him the answer of how low can we go on neighbor love and still be good with God. Give me the least amount of neighbor love I can give so I can go home and, and feel really good about myself. And Jesus doesn't really fall for that. He doesn't give us the low end of the totem pole kind of answer. He launches into a question. Actually, he launches into a story before he launches into this tremendous question. And the the story he tells is rather famous. In fact, this story that he tells is so disorienting and so paradigm-shifting that it has literally become the most famous parable Jesus has ever told. It is apparently even more famous globally than the parable of the prodigal son. He launches into the story and he says, there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which immediately in the story, he's put this man on a very dangerous path, a famously dangerous path called the bloody way. It was the kind of road you did not want to be on when your burrow broke down. It it took you through really dangerous neighborhoods, so dangerous that AOL would not even deliver mail there. And so people wanted to hurry through there as quick as they could. And unfortunately, the guy gets what often happens there on that particular road. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes because clothes were very valuable. 
beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, again, I just want to remind you, this is not just any parable. This is now universal language. That is to say, if I were to say, Alessandro is a good Samaritan, or the police are good Samaritans, everybody around the globe is basically going to know what I'm talking about, believe it or not. Because this parable is so far-reaching in its power that even people who aren't believers know this. I mean, people have... People oftentimes will use the term Good Samaritan idiom, and they don't oftentimes even know it comes from the Bible because they just know, here's the story. It's that powerful, it's that profound, and it's that influential personally in people's lives because I think most people recognize that if we just live by the parable of the Good Samaritan, we would all be in better shape as a nation, as a, as a planet. In fact, if you're one of these people that says, I really like that whole Good Samaritan lifestyle thing, then maybe if you're not already a follower of Jesus Christ, you ought to consider this because he's the one who gave us the story. He's the one who expanded the understanding and definition of neighbor. And so if you love the story, well, good for you. It shows you've got some good common sense because most people, when they come into the story, they say, you know, if we would just, if everybody would just take the lesson of the story and apply it to their family and apply it to their marriage and apply it to their neighborhood. If they just, if every state, if, if every nation would just take this and start living it out for a few weeks, it could change this whole fractured world into a giant neighborhood. Most people say this teaching just seems entirely right. And if that's you, you're correct because this comes from Jesus well, Jesus tells this story about this man who gets all beat up and he's inches away from death. And then he says there are these two religious types that come by and they pass by on the other side. It's a priest and a Levite. Now, the, the, the priest and the Levite who represent the religious types, I don't know exactly why they don't stop. I don't know why they hurry on the other side. Jesus doesn't say. It could be they're a little bit afraid to stop on the bloody way. They're a little bit afraid because maybe if this guy just got jumped, maybe the robbers are still around. Maybe this guy is in on it. Or maybe they do what a lot of people do, and they just think, well, if somebody has gotten all beaten up, they probably did something to deserve it. It's a very human, very religious way of thinking. Commonly, when we see people who are down and out or experiencing difficulties, commonly, the first thing we think is, what did they do to deserve that? Because in life, people get what they deserve, except for me. I don't get what I deserve. I, I deserve more. But everybody else gets what they deserve. That's a very, very religious way of thinking. I don't know why they pass by on the other side, but they do. Here's how Jesus tells the story. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, if Jesus is correct and this whole love God, love neighbor thing is true, then both of these religious types go home unjustified. I mean, they're in trouble. They didn't even show the right love to their own neighbor, even in their narrow sense of the term. Everybody in Jesus' audience is understanding this. But then Jesus goes next level. He takes people where, where they did not expect him to ever take them. Jesus says, but a Samaritan. And he makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. But a Samaritan. Now, Jews didn't like Samaritans. You've probably heard that. It has something to do with racial tensions and I ethnic difficulties. I don't have time to get into all the history of this, but just suffice it to say that the tension there is something like how the Japanese couldn't stand the Chinese or the, the Tutsis were after the Hutus or, or like, you know, Longhorns 
toward Sooners, something, something along those lines. They couldn't stand each other. In fact, the Jews thought they had a right, that they had a right to hate the Samaritans. Now, in every culture, there are people who say these are our people, and then there, there are these who are not our people, and then there are those who really, really, really are not our people at all. There's the Longhorns, and I can say this because my daughter's Longhorn. And then, well, these are not our people, you know, Baylor Bears, but they're okay, but they're just not our people. And then there's the Sooners. For the Jews, the Samaritans were way over on that end of the spectrum. Those are absolutely not our people at all, not whatsoever. In fact, one of the worst things ever said of Jesus was in John chapter, chapter, oh, good grief, John chapter 8, I think, verse 48, where somebody is saying this of Jesus. Isn't it true, Jesus, that you are demon-possessed and a Samaritan? You know, as bad as demons are, well, that's just about the same as Samaritans. As completely other, as absolutely dirty and filthy as demons are, well, that's about the same as Samaritans. In fact, up until this point in the story, most of the people were probably assuming that the person who beat up that guy that's laying on the road was probably Samaritan because, you know, we all know how those people are. So Jesus is taking a risk here in the story when he makes the hero a Samaritan. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he did what the religious people did not do. He took pity on him. Then Jesus turns this guy into a veritable Mother Teresa type. I can't believe he just did that sort of a figure. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, which meant that the Samaritan is actually touching the Jew, which Jews would not have liked, pouring on oil and wine, and those were not cheap. Then he put the man on his own donkey, that is, he had to embrace the man and lift him up, and that actually put the Jew up in a position of master, whereas the Samaritan who's leading the donkey would have been assuming the position of a servant or maybe even a slave. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Now, I'm pretty sure that there were very few people in Jesus' audience that would have done that for other Jews. I doubt that any of them would have done this for a Samaritan, but Jesus keeps pouring it on. The next day, and everybody's flipping out. What do you mean the next day? You mean he stayed with this Jew all night and took care of him? The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, see, there's going to be a return visit, a follow-up visit, because this guy is actually personally invested in him. He's not just doing a program where he can just kind of touch him and move along on the other side. This guy is actually invested in this person's life in a personal, ongoing manner. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Sky's the limit. Jesus could not have told a story that was more over the top than this one. And so probably at this point, Jesus has to let everybody in the audience catch their breath because of the weight of this story. And then after a pause, he asks this man, who's in earshot of everybody else, he asks this lawyer who's been questioning him a question, and it's a really, really good question, and he asks this question that leads to an answer that actually expands the understanding of and definition of neighbor like nothing else ever has. To the shock of everyone in the audience, Jesus asked this question that pushes neighbor beyond the boundaries of Judea and Galilee and Samaria, actually to the uttermost ends of the earth. Here's the question Jesus asks. Which of these three men do you think, which of these three men do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Now, you can kind of picture the scene here because Jesus always had a following. And this teacher of the law is 
coming so as to get Jesus. He's not asking him the question. He's not testing Jesus so that Jesus will pass. He's testing Jesus, hoping he will flunk. And so this guy's probably brought an entourage. And Jesus always had an entourage. So I don't know how many were there. Maybe a couple hundred people just maybe sitting down. Some of them standing on rocks. And, but here's Jesus and this lawyer, and they're sort of set apart from everybody else. Jesus asked this man this question, and in this moment, this man is thinking to himself, why did I ever question Jesus? When you question Jesus and you listen to him for a while, you kind of feel a little embarrassed. And the most difficult thing probably in this moment for this lawyer is not knowing the right answer. The most difficult thing is just giving the right answer because he knew the answer. What's so hard about answering this question? It's not knowing what the right answer is. It's recognizing that when you answer the question out loud, you're accountable to your answer. This guy's a lawyer. He probably doesn't want to answer this. Now, in an American situation, an American lawyer generally is going to do everything they can to keep their defendant from taking the stand. You know why? Because if the defendant takes the stand, then whatever they say, they'll be held accountable to. You even go to a municipal court. We're not even talking, you know, like felonies or something. You go to a municipal court, maybe for a traffic ticket or something. You have to plea guilty, not guilty, or no contest. They make you say it out loud, or at least I've been told. I wouldn't know, you know. Uh, but, but if you have a speeding ticket, they're going to make you say Guilty, not guilty, no contest, because they want to hold you accountable to your answer. So here's this lawyer, and he's been asked this question. He's a little nervous. He didn't want to say it out loud. So since he didn't want to say it out loud, I'm going to let you say it out loud. I'm going to ask you the question, and I want you to answer out loud to the person next to you. Can you do this? Humor me. You hear? All right. Which of these three... Do you think the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? What's the answer? Say it out loud. Okay, that was pretty good. That was so much better than the first service. You know, and really, in the first service, I think it's like it's a sin to talk in church or something, you know. But, but you guys, you guys know it's not a sin. I see that all the time. You know it's not a sin. So, uh, yeah, you all answered. The Samaritan. Okay, now here's, here's the thing. Now that you've given the answer, you're accountable to it. And there are implications for your answer. We'll get into some of these implications next week as we get a little bit more specific on these strategic plans and our goals and reaching them and all the rest and how this kind of ties into just what we're talking about today. We're going to come back to this parable next week, and I'm excited about this. But there are all kinds of implications that you may not even know at the, at the moment. For example, I was asked this last week uh, about my kids and getting married and all the, the rest because neither one, neither one of them are engaged, they're unattached, they're single and available. But my daughter's 18, my son's 21. They're at that stage where, you know, starting to think at least a little bit more seriously. So I was asked, when it comes to your son and your daughter, are you, you know, do you mind or do you care if either of them, do you care when it comes to Nathan or Shelby who they marry in terms of race? 
And immediately I, I said, no, I don't care. And I also said, in, when I was their age and single, you know, basically every female of every race was kind of interesting to me. And so if it's good for me, it's good for them. And Gina was in the first service, and she heard me say that, and she threw something at me. Uh, but, but, you know, it's just like, hey, I don't care, really. But I have to be honest with you. Well, I woke up the next day thinking about that question. And because this is my son, this is my daughter, I want what's best for them. And, and so I'm going to modify my answer. I had to. And uh, don't judge me, please. Here, here's my answer. Red and yellow, black and white, they're all precious in his sight. I, I know that. But I really do have a preference for who my kids marry. I want, to marry, I, I want them to both marry a Samaritan. I'm just wanting them to marry a Samaritan. I don't really care about the results of the DNA tests or any of that from Ancestry.com. But what I really want for my son, what I really want for my daughter, is that they would marry a Samaritan. Because a Samaritan is someone who's just like Jesus. Because in the story, that's Jesus, the Samaritan. Let's go ahead and finish the story. Jesus asked this man, so who was the neighbor? Which one of these was the, the man's neighbor? And the lawyer answers. The expert in the law replied, the one, he can't even say Samaritan, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, again, this story is so rich, and we're going to have to come back to it next, next week. But I have to end on this. Jesus is the good Samaritan. Now, he tells all of us, go and do likewise. Like, this isn't something that only applies to Jesus. But I have to tell you, Jesus is not the cosmic hypocrite. Jesus never tells us to go anywhere. He never has us to follow him someplace where he hasn't already gone or isn't already going. Jesus is the good Samaritan. Because when you get right down to it, to love your neighbor as yourself, here's what Jesus has just taught us. To love your neighbor as yourself means that you that you are seeking to meet the needs of this other person with all of the passion and all of the joy and all of the power and all of the force and all of the immediacy and all of the interest with which you meet your own needs. So that when their needs are met, you're just as happy as if your own needs were met because all of your happiness is wrapped up in their happiness so that when they are happy and satisfied, you are happy and satisfied. And you think, I don't know that I've ever loved my neighbor as myself if that's the case. And if you are honest, you, that's, you're right. But Jesus has loved you that way. You do have a good neighbor who lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. And he was happy for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, the Bible tells us. He was happy to, to not just get down off his donkey, but to leave the highest of heavens and to descend into hell for you so that you could be seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. You have a perfect neighbor. It ought to be kind of clear, too, that when you understand the great command, it kind of fits pretty well with the great commission, which is to proclaim and announce Jesus Christ. Because even though other people may not know this, and they don't, even though lots of people don't know 
that they have the perfect Good Samaritan neighbor, from Jesus' standpoint, he is a neighbor to everyone in the world. So here's what we do when we announce Jesus. At the heart of it, we're just introducing people to their Samaritan neighbor. And when people get to know their Samaritan neighbor and they fall in love with their Samaritan neighbor, the whole neighborhood changes. More on this next week, but for now, let's go ahead and bow for a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful to be your people. You have done for us in Christ what we could not do for ourselves. And and you got down from the high place and you stooped down to where we were. And you, you didn't just pour oil and wine on our wounds. You poured out your blood that we would be healed. And you bandaged us, not just with linens, but with your flesh. And in spite of the fact that we know you have brought healing into our lives and have paid the ultimate price, there's still healing that needs to happen in our hearts and in our lives. And it sometimes takes so long, and yet you spare no expense. And you are involved in an ongoing relationship with the likes of us, and you have been for several weeks, months, years, decades, and you're still transforming us and you're still healing us. And you never leave us nor forsake us. There's no neighbor like you. And what the world needs is a neighbor like you. So, Lord, we just say thank you for being our neighbor. Thank you even for the call that you've given to us to introduce you as the good neighbor. And may we be grateful for your love toward us. And may we be thrilled to announce your love to other people. And in light of the love that you've given to us and to all of humankind, I pray, Lord, that we would be submissive to your design for our lives to come to the rescue, to proclaim Christ and to show compassion in practical ways, especially to those who cannot help themselves. Lord, I pray that you will press us forward as a church to meet the goals that we believe you have set before us. May we, may we go... May we follow you in all things. May we not waver. May we not falter. And may we give you all the praise and all the glory as we display your love in a practical way by being the neighbors you've called us to be. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.